So for those of you who have been around for a while, every January I give our church a vision talk. A vision talk is where I share with you where I feel like we're going um, in 2018. You know, our leaders get together, we pray, and we're generally laying out, you know, what are the initiatives, where is God leading us, where are we going to invest our time, energy, and resources. Now, when we got to this building uh, around 2010, I strategically made a shift and picked Super Bowl Sunday to give my vision talk. Now, here was my thinking. I thought, wow, on a day where 100 million people are watching and concerned and passionate about grown men taking an oblong, silly ball and moving it across a goal line, we would talk about the church and eternal things and all that we could accomplish. Now, I did that because 99% of the time I was sure that our beloved Eagles would not be in that game. <laughs> and of course, we know what's going on this year, and I'll be watching like everybody else. It's great fellowship. Can I tell you all something? It's just a game. And they're going to play next year, and it's all about money, and it's a good thing. But you know what? The sad part about it is there are people that this is all they have to live for. And you know what? I would have been one of those people, and so would you. But God had another story of redemption, and praise God, we do have an eternal perspective. Now, some of you are saying, what's a vision talk? I've never heard a vision talk in church. I don't even know what it is. So, so let me share with you. Number one, God is a visionary. God comes to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, taps him on the shoulder. He's an idol worshiper from the area of Samaria. And he says, Abraham, let me give you a vision. Look at, the, look at the stars. They're innumerable. Look at the sand. It's innumerable. Out of you, out of your posterity, I'm going to forge a nation. This nation, I'm going to deliver my covenants, the word of God, the commandments. And it's not only going to change this nation, it's going to be a light unto the whole entire world. It's going to come from your body, Abraham, and one day you will be called great, and this will be a great nation. That vision, that dream that God gave Abraham that day has sustained the Jewish people for four millennia through persecution, trial, invasion, and even a holocaust. And they're thriving today, and they've always thrived wherever they've been, and today certainly in the land of Israel. Jesus one day gave his 12 disciples, his team, a vision. He took them two days' journey from Galilee to an area called Caesarea Philippi. It's called the Gates of Hell. It was a pagan area because Herod's brother, Philip, had jurisdiction in that area. If you go to Caesarea Philippi today, you can still see grottos where altars were erected to Zeus and Apollo and Athena Nike and the god Pan. And Jesus, in the midst of all these competing worldviews and paganism, looked at his men and said, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're Elijah, John the Baptist. You know, they had all these ideas. Peter makes this wonderful declaration that Jesus said could have only come from heaven. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, Peter, upon that revelation that I am the Christ, I will build my church. First time Jesus ever used that word. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus said that the community he was going to build, the church, would play offense, not defense. That it would go in the areas like Ephesus and Corinth in those days, epicenters of community. It would go in places like New York, Las Vegas, and San Francisco. It would go into communist China and Russia and around the world. And it would not only survive, but it would thrive. Let me 
give you just a list of what the church has prevailed against in 2,000 years. The church has overcome the Roman Empire, the Caesars, paganism, communism, capitalism, the theory of evolution, humanistic philosophy, the enlightenment, dictatorship, humanistic science, the new age, modernity, technology, and Islam, and we're still here today, and the church is expanding and growing, and God's doing great things. Let me switch gears for a minute and give you just a secular idea of vision. Probably the most four memorable words in American history are, I have a dream. Now, Martin Luther King wasn't a founding father. Many think he is. But he laid out this dream on a mall in Washington, D.C. that has forged a civil rights movement in this country and has brought about some of the greatest reforms any nation has ever seen. And we can all trace it back to one vision that he had and a dream. That's the power of vision. Vision is very strong. The, the prophet Habakkuk said, make the vision plain. Uh, plain enough to write it on a t-shirt. He didn't say that. I added that. Why? So that those who read it, they can first understand it. It's pretty simple. And they can run with it. Now here's where things get interesting. Um, before Western civilization came, uh, people in the East identified with nations, tribes, kins, and your family. Uh, it still works that way in Eastern uh, blocks of the world. Uh, what that meant is that, that everybody collectively saw themselves as a part of the whole. Uh, Nehemiah is a classic example of that, right? His friends come, he says, hey, uh, he's in Persia, how's Jerusalem? They're like, oh, not good. Temples destroyed, the ruins, the walls rebuilt. And, and Nehemiah knows the dream of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knows what God said to Abraham. He knows something's wrong. And he weeps, and then he prays. And he go back and read his prayer. It's amazing. He confesses his sin and the sin of the nation. Now, here's what's striking about that. Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem. He was born in the captivity. He's living a pretty good life. He's prime minister in Persia. Things are good. But as a whole, he collectively sees himself as part of why things aren't flourishing in Jerusalem. Now, in the Western world, you and I are part of a different identity. Yes, we're patriotic and we have ethnic backgrounds and all, but basically we find our identity in money, you know, big houses, nice cars, we find our identity in clothing, right? The style that we wear, our sexuality. You know, it's unbelievable today that sexuality is the number one question you get, right? You know, since when do we define ourselves by sexuality? But in the modern world, we do. Habakkuk said, we need to write the vision, make it plain on tablets, because the rank and file need to run with it. It's very important in the church. For years, most of you went to church, you didn't realize you were the church, and I'm talking capital C church. We're part of the new community. You were baptized into the body of Christ universal. That's why when we go on a missions trip, we meet up with believers and we feel like we've known them our entire lives. It's a beautiful thing. And finally, Proverbs 29, 18, with all clarity says, without a vision, people perish. Now, in our world, people won't die without a vision. In our context, they'll just move on to lesser, 
lesser important ventures. And I've been sharing with you for a while that the, 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 the people group on my heart the most is the 50 plus community empty nesters. Here's why they're on my heart. I'm part of that group. And I know it takes a lot of work, physical and mental, to raise a family. And so you're running the ball games, and you're doing all the good stuff you should do, and then you're trying to be part of the church, you know, and, and do those things. And now you're at a place where you have more money, more time, more wisdom, and some 50-year-olds are embracing that and doing great things in the kingdom, and they serve in the church, and others are losing their minds. They're buying timeshares and golfing and looking. You know, I go out to my dad's in Phoenix once a year, and there's all these retired people in the pool with those noodles, like, whipping each other. They're 50 and 60 years old. And I'm thinking, what are you doing? You could change the world. But that's what happens when there's no vision. So for the next three weeks, we're going to expand this a little. We're going to look at what is CC Delco. What is our mission? What defines us? We're going to look at our core values. Uh, some we've had from the beginning, some that we've added. Uh, what are we going to live by? What are the non-negotiables? And then in the last week, we're going to look at our future and see what God might have for the next 10, 15 years. So you all ready to go? You all buckled in? Haven't even started. This is all like pre-warm-up, okay? Open your Bibles to Mark 4. I'll say a short prayer. God, C.C. Delco was your idea 24 years ago. Lord, you knew from the foundation of the world we would be in Delaware County. And you chose a small band like us. Lord, we plowed up fallow ground. We planted seeds of the gospel. You gave the increase. Lord, you made us a community. We've raised our kids together. We've buried family members. We've experienced high highs and low lows. And you've been gracious all these years. Where you've guided, you've provided, and people have been generous. And Lord, in some ways, we think we just got started. We think you've got a brand new chapter for us. And so we're excited to go through this time. We're excited for all those who are here, and all those who are ever listen, and we pray that the Holy Spirit would guide this talk. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to start this message the way I've started it for 20 years, and it's by drawing this S-curve which is the life cycle of organizations. It's the life cycle of your family, your life, uh, the organization you lead, or a church. Now, I didn't come up with this, but uh, five years into our ministry, I took 10 emerging leaders from our church away, and I said, guys, here's what we need to do this weekend. We need to craft a vision, mission statement, core values, because we basically planted a church. This was our infant stage. Five years later, we're at childhood. And, you know, there's going to come that time of adolescence between, you know, five and ten years. And for you parents of adolescence, thank God I'm through that. Uh, they're going to start challenging you. If you don't, if they're not already, uh, uh, it's coming, right? They're going to trade the collective 80 years of wisdom of you and your wife for Johnny down the street, right? He kind of knows everything. And so we said, look, we better codify this stuff. You know, we're a Calvary Chapel. We have distinctives. You know, we, we have these ironclad things we're doing. But there's going to come a day where newcomers are going to challenge what we're doing. 
Right about the 10-year mark, we had this wonderful 10-year anniversary plan. We hit what I called the perfect storm. We had had 10 years of bliss. I would go to pastor's conferences, sit around with pastors. They would tell all these ugly stories. I had no stories. It was like when you used to go to confession in the Catholic Church. You had to kind of make stuff up while you were in line. And then at 10 years, wow, the perfect storm came. And I kind of learned and grew through that. And I realized every seven to 10 years, every church will go through some form of spiritual warfare. If you're doing anything for God, spiritual warfare will be ratcheted up pretty high. Uh, so we did that. And then by God's grace, we hit adulthood. Now, if you look up on the screen, we kind of put some Christianese around this. You start a church, you grow, you reach maturity, there's revival, and then the inevitable decline. But in 2010, we got on this facility and we hit adulthood. What's adulthood? Adulthood is when, when you start, even though you're in a beef and beer hall, you're telling people where we could go and be one day. Now, we never had destination disease. Uh, I've enjoyed every phase, but we got to adulthood and what happens in adulthood is people start saying, I liked it here and here, and I liked it here. And you know what I say? Those aren't the good old days. These are the good old days. Thank you. Do you know why these are the good old days? These are the only days we have. This is the day the Lord has made. Rejoice and be glad in it. Uh, you, can't, you can't wish your children were five or six years old. They're not. They're grown. I love my grown children. And when I spend time with my children, I was just in Nashville with them. These are the good old days. It's the only days we have. So this life cycle has served us well over the years. And one of the things you have to ask yourself in the life cycle is, we've had pretty good growth. We've grown from 50 to 2,000. And the question is how? And Mark gives us the answer. Mark chapter 4, 26 is the most overlooked parable in all the Bible. And if you learn nothing today, you'll learn from this parable in Mark. Everybody looks at the parable of the sower. They forget this parable and only Mark has it. He said, the kingdom of God is this if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Now watch this. He should sleep by night and rise by day. The seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head. After that, the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle. Why? Because the harvest has come. Now, there are people who have this mythological idea on how to start a church. I know how we'll start a church, and they usually look at the success of another church. Here's what we'll do. We'll have a men's ministry, women's ministry. We'll go on men's retreats. We'll feed the poor. We'll care for the community. We'll, we'll do outreach. We'll do all these things. We'll, we'll play cool contemporary worship. I call that a baker's mentality. And they think if we can put all these ingredients in a pie, voila, we'll have a church. When we started this church 24 years ago, we did one thing and we did one thing only. Now, next week I'm going to talk to you about values, but I want to let the cat out of the bag early. Uh, give me the values, and I'm going to talk to the first one. We believe that the word of God and the word only should be there is the only 
is the only catalyst for life change. If there's anything I believe still to this day is that only the seed of the word of God going into a human heart and mind can bring any transformation to anyone. When we started, this is all we did. We taught the word of God. Delaware County was a very dry place. I tried. You couldn't find a Bible teaching church anywhere. Praise God, they're all over now. We're part of it. That's beautiful. You know what happened when we taught the word of God? People's hearts got excited. People that were on the sidelines in other churches or new, newly minted Christians start becoming ushers and greeters, bringing donuts and coffee, working in children's church. Leaders start to emerge. People's natural gifts emerge. People put air conditioning in that church. They laid carpet. People were genuinely excited. They saw God moving, but it sprung from the word of God. And it still happens today. We don't have everything done here. We need your gifts. But leaders started to emerge, and then we wanted to care for the poor, and then we had a vision for compassion and justice. And it all followed the teaching of the Word of God. Now, the parable in Mark is very interesting. It tells us a few things. The first thing it tells us is that there's two parts to growth. There's our part, and there's God's part. Notice in the parable, the, the, the farmer goes out and he has to cast the seed, right? He doesn't sit in his house and pray. He goes out and he casts seed. He tills the soil. When the harvest comes, he brings it in. Then there's a God part. Please listen to this. Growth is God's domain. Very early in Scripture, there's a metaphor of seed. Seed produces after its kind. Seed goes in the soil. Jesus said it produces 30, 60, and 100 fold. It's all the way through Scripture. Healthy things grow. And growth is God's part. We don't know how. Guess what the first question everybody wants to know when they see something successful? How did you do it? I have people that come here and say, uh, can I take you out to lunch? Because I want to know how you did this. And uh, I can tell them how to pastor and give them a few principles. But basically, I can't. You know, the earth produces by itself. God, God gives the growth. And God controls the size of the growth. Now, I want to talk about church size for a minute because most conversations I hear and most questions I hear are about size, okay? Um, size is an interesting thing. Remember, I've been the pastor of every size church, right? I remember driving home when we were 100 people, and I told my wife, I could pastor 100 people for the rest of my life. This is great. God had other ideas, right? And we've grown to 2,000 plus children, Tim Keller uh, in New York City, Redeemer Presbyterian Church, has written with his team the quintessential document on church growth. If you're kind of like a church wonk, uh, you, can you can download that at Redeemer. There's a PDF. But listen to what Tim says. He said, every church has a culture that goes with size that must be accepted. Most people prefer a certain size culture, and unfortunately, may give their favorite size culture a moral status and treat other size categories as spiritually or morally inferior. They may insist that the only biblical way to do church is to practice a certain size culture despite the fact that the congregation they attend is much too big or small to fit that culture. Some of you may feel that way at times. Um, what happens is 
Let's say you're an introvert and you say, I like a small culture. The problem is you might go to a small culture that grows. Now what do you do? Look for another church? So everybody has a preference, but what Tim Keller's saying is, we've got to accept what God does. Let me make this clear. 120 people in the book of Acts went into an upper room. You think they were a tight-knit group? Mary's there. James is there. Right? Everybody, they knew each other by name. A lot of them saw Jesus after the resurrection. How cool would it have been to close that down and say the 120 will stay together forever? Wouldn't that have been a great church? God had other ideas. The Holy Spirit comes and 3,000 get saved the first day and then 5,000. What do you think the 120 had to do? Train them all up. You know, get their gloves ready and bring in the harvest. Say, we don't control growth, God does. Again, you wouldn't want your five-year-old to stay five-year-old forever. Um, I have to read this to you because it makes so much sense and it's a myth breaker. Tim Keller talks about healthy resistance. He said, every church has aspects of its natural size, where God has grown it to, um, and its culture that has to be resisted. So let's start with large churches like ours. He says, large churches have a great difficulty to keep track of members who drop out or fall away from the, from the faith. This should never be accepted as inevitable. In other words, we shouldn't settle for that. Rather, the large church must continually struggle to improve pastoral care and discipleship. I can't tell you how many meetings we have about closing our back door. For every person that graciously says, oh, Pastor Bob, we've been here for three years, we love it here, but we're moving to Boston... There are people that leave and just never tell us. And we kind of bat our head against the wall and we do all that we can to find them and see how it's going. That's a fight of a larger church. Keller says, out of necessity, the large church must be organizationally adept and adopt techniques from the business world. Now, this is where people say, oh, that church went corporate. You know, all truth is God's truth, by the way. Corporations didn't invent those truths. Uh, when you have to manage 80,000 square foot of property and pay people and all, I mean, you need best practices. But the danger for that larger church is that ministry can become too results-oriented and focus on quantitable outcomes like attendance, membership, and giving, rather than the goals of holiness and character growth. Again, this tendency should not be accepted as inevitable. Rather, new strategies... A focusing on love and virtue must always be generated. In other words, we've got to do our work and say, uh, get grounded. By the way, the Ephesian church was this church. The Ephesian church was a large church. All the other churches in Revelation spawned out of that church at Ephesus. Jesus comes along and he said, this is a great church. You guys got all the balls in the air. They're all spinning, all the machines running. But you lost your first love. That's the fight. You lost your first love. Let's get to the smaller church. Some of you are going to crack up because you've seen this. The smaller church by its nature gives immature, outspoken, opinionated, and broken members a significant degree of power over the whole body. Since everyone knows everyone else, when members of a family or small group express strong opposition to the direction set by the pastor and leaders, their misery love that word, 
can hold the whole congregation hostage. If they threaten to leave, the majority of people will urge the leaders to desist in the project. It's extremely difficult to get complete consensus about programs and directions in a group of 50 to 150 people, especially in today's diverse, fragmented society. And yet smaller churches have an unwritten rule that for any new initiative to be implemented, nearly everyone should be happy. Wouldn't you love to preside over that? Can't even make six people my family happy. <laughs> Leaders of small churches must be brave enough to lead and to confront those immature members in spite of the unpleasantness involved. And here, here it all is. There is no best size for a church. Each size presents great difficulties and great opportunities for ministry. Um, only together can churches of all sizes be what Christ wants them to be. God has small, little, medium, large, mega churches for a reason. He's trying to accomplish one big task. So the myth that smaller is better and larger is better is a myth. Here's what I know because I've pastored all sizes. When we were smaller in the early years, the fight was we had to get larger. So I led most of the missions trips when we were a small church. So we would partner with larger churches that had the resources and we would go with them and we felt part of a bigger unit. Our youth groups had to go to multi-youth group um, situations. There are small, group, small churches that use our church that way. They come the sizzling summer, some of our bigger conferences and their retreats. That's a wonderful thing. The fight for a larger church like us is to get smaller. You probably never thought this through, but we offer a lot of programs for groups of 50. You know, we have a small groups program, but we offer a lot of 50 type things. 50 people go to Israel, right? Our Calvary campus is designed for about 50 people. And uh, we have some other things like that so that you can get to know a swath of people. And when you serve on a serving team, um, that helps. Uh, so, so here's what I believe. I think we're the perfect size. We can even be a tad bigger and it would be okay. Here's some of the perks of a larger church. Some of the perks of a larger church is we can make deep impact in places like Africa, Guatemala, Russia. Some of these well projects we're doing and building these schools and partnering with Nairobi Chapel could not be done when we were small and we, we didn't have the resources or the, or the people capital to get them done. Uh, as a larger church, you, you have children's pastors, middle school pastors, you know, uh, senior pastors. You get more people to lead you. We can bring in better speakers and teachers. We can do things like sizzling summer and large-scale retreats. As a larger church, we can have a cafe. And can I tell you, the, the other day I had several conversations. And by the way, I'm there till 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And I left that cafe one day and I said, God, I don't know if I could do church without this cafe. I have met so many people and heard so many stories and blessed people and seen people blessed. This is the greatest thing I think we've ever done. And that couldn't be done on a small scale. So that's growth. Now, when I took those people away and we crafted a mission statement, what was it? Uh, everybody received a handout on the way in. This was meant to keep in your Bible. Some of you may have seen this. Some of you may never have seen it. We exist to take people on a journey 
to become fully devoted followers of Christ. That's why C.C. Delco exists. Now, some churches are all about evangelism. Everything they do is just drenched in evangelism. We are not that church. Their whole goal is to turn irreligious people into fully devoted followers of Christ. That's not who we are. Some churches are all about discipleship. Let's put everybody in a group. Let's all get deeper. You know, 80 years into this, let's go a little deeper. That's not who we are, okay? We believe that no matter where we pick you up, whether you become a Christian in this church or we pick you up 35 years later, you've been in another church for 35 years, and we've had that and everybody in between, we want to put you on a journey through all that we offer to make you a fully devoted follower of Christ. What's a fully devoted follower of Christ? Paul said in Galatians, I labor again and again till Christ be formed in you. In another place, he said, I labor until you might know the height and the depth of your calling in Christ. Fully devoted followers of Christ, listen, I find their identity in Christ, not the dominant culture. Too many Christians, who even go to churches like ours, when push comes to shove, identify with the culture, not Christ. I share with the men on the men's retreat, Edwin Lewis Cole taught me this 35 years ago. Christ-likeness and manhood are synonymous. Carson Wentz isn't my model as a Christian, neither is Bono, Justin Timberlake, Warren Buffett. None of them are my model. Christ is my model, and that's what I'm being formed in. Same if you're a woman, same for every Christ follower. A fully devoted follower of Christ is someone who is finding their identity in Christ. It doesn't mean your ethnicity is important. It doesn't mean you can't be patriotic. It doesn't mean your career isn't really cool and wonderful. It just means at the end of the day, Christ is your identity. Second thing that a fully devoted follower of Christ does is they make critical, lifelong decisions based on Scripture. What's their standard of living going to be? Are they going to be generous with their time and talent? What's their sexuality going to be? Are they going to look at marriage as the only place where sex can happen and everything celibate beyond that? What's the morality going to be like? Church attendance, career. In other words, who's driving the train for them? Barna tells us only 60% of born-again people actually make life's most critical decisions based on the Bible. And I see it often. Young couples who love God come to me. We want to get married. Yeah, but I'm seeing you're living together. Oh, Pastor Bob, you don't understand. It's too expensive today. We pooled our resources. And I say, look, if you don't honor God in this decision, you're not going to honor him in future decisions. You need to trust him now, and he'll bless. I've been through it. Fully devoted followers of Christ find their spiritual gifts. They find their orientation and what God has called them to do. Paul said we are his workmanship. We are his poems being read of all men. You put enough of these people in a room, you have a prevailing church. And the gates of hell will never stop us. You put another, enough of these people in a room, church becomes irresistible. Why? Because the presence of God is palpable. The early church sensed all when the apostles and the people were together. You put enough people in this place and the word of God is taught, this place becomes irresistible. 
Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It can't. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Isn't that why we exist, to, to enjoy God and to give him glory forever? Isn't that the chief end of man? Matt Chandler of the Village Church comments on this. He said that you... In the scripture, you are the salt and light, is emphatic and restrictive. Here's what it means. When Jesus says you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world, he's not talking to everyone. He's talking about his followers, and he's not talking about them just individually, but as a group. The emphatic restrictive says if we're going to understand this text, we have to understand our relationship with God and how that works itself out in our relationships to one another. Only when we see that rightly can we address this falling short of the glory of God in a way that brings life instead of guilt, shame, and surrendering to the gods of this age, the gods of perfectionism and strength. In other words, in the day of social media where you're a brand, right? You've got a Facebook, Instagram, you're a brand. And sometimes you're defined by that brand. And the other problem is you're looking at everybody else that's doing cool stuff. People that are in Hawaii, people that are buying $500 boots. You know, you know. Jesus said, no, you, you're not defined by that. You're defined by this community, this group, your salt, your light. Together, we're better than we are individually. Now, individually, you should be a light to the world wherever you go. That's wonderful. But collectively, there's something for us to do. Uh, back on the screen, the death spiral. The graying years and death. Did I already say I was in London and I saw that sign with Spurgeon? So I was in London and <laughs> I, uh, I was standing on a street corner waiting for a light to change. And there was a neon sign that said Charles Spurgeon's church used to be here. Charles Spurgeon's church sat, he didn't have 5,000 people in his church, it sat 5,000 people in the 1800s. His sermons were in the London Times. He's the prince of preachers. Charles, Charles Spurgeon's church used to be here. Thousands of churches closed their doors every day. Why do churches, companies, why does everything decline? Well, common sense, natural aging. I was 30 when we started this church on 55. So everybody I started with are older. Next year when I give this vision talk, we'll all be a year older. There's a natural aging. Our fight is to get younger. Through intentionality, we lowered our aggregate staff age seven years down to 43 years. I'm very proud of that. We're having interns come this summer. Uh, really cool program. I'll, I'll leak out in the third message. We're doing everything we can to fight this natural aging progression. Second reason why uh, churches decline is they cling to values that once worked but now are outdated and irrelevant. 
Jeremiah says we should always consider the old paths. There are some non-negotiable values, we'll talk about them next week, that we will never get away from. Never, ever, ever, no matter what the culture does. Some need to change. Calvary Chapel in the late 60s was on the cutting edge of innovation. It was led by the Spirit of God. Hippies were coming in droves, and Chuck Smith let them come in barefoot and smelly, right? Didn't care if the church was messed up. They used to make fun of preachers in polyester suits and how other churches did things. They were the hip, cool, innovative church. Now they're 50 years old. Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, the epicenter of the Jesus movement, is in decline. And if you go there, it's quite sad. And some of it is they look down on other innovative communities and say these classic words. We'll never do that that way around here. Fourth reason why churches die, and I'm going to end with this, and it's the most important thing I'll say. They lose a kingdom mentality. They lose a kingdom mentality. Whenever you see a church in a death spiral, here's what has happened. A church has shifted from offense to defense. No longer is it all about what's the kingdom and how are we going to reach the masses and the fields are white for harvest. Every discussion about how do we keep the sheep in the pen? How do we make sure nobody leaves? Men get bored and disengage. Young men leave. Young women leave. Young couples visit. They don't see anybody their age. Nurseries closed. There's no babies. Pews are filled with gray hair. Now listen, I love our older saints. I'll give you an inside secret. They're the people group I get along with the best. Number one, my grandmother, I used to go to bingo with her and socials, and I've always been comfortable around older people. And number two, they like me and criticize me less. So they're one of my favorite groups. One author said, as churches become more established when they reach adulthood, parishioners begin to shift from a kingdom of God mentality to a family of God mentality. They stopped thinking of the church in terms of its mission or vision and began seeing it as an association or collective of people who love each other. Sounds good, right? Kingdoms are about doing. Families are about being. Now, you're not going to like me for the next five minutes, but then it all makes sense. There is a tension in life, especially in the church world, of is it all about people or is it all about tasks? Now, you may not know this unless you've taken a personality ta test. We're all either personality or task-driven, every one of us here, okay? It's our makeup. So in a church, you know, is it the mission that we care about or do we really care about people? And I think most of you know enough to know that all of life is both and, right? Uh, someone kind of said this, and I think it's great. If you're at a party, it's all about people. If you're putting out a fire, it's all about the task, okay? So at different times, it's all of that, right? Now, I don't want to mix metaphors here. Listen, we are a family for sure. There are people in this room that mean more to me than my biological family, and I've done more with them and will always be with them. Please, please do not leave this room and not understand that. 
But when you as a church have a family mentality and not a kingdom mentality, decision makers will generally make the wrong decisions because they're deciding against mission and deciding to keep the status quo. Fights evolve over VBS, service times, what the pastor preaches. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Uh, can I give you a great example? What's the absolute worst thing that could happen to your family? You would lose a member, right? Get a phone call, so-and-so has died. Worst thing that can happen to a family. What happens when someone leaves a church? And by the way, a church has to grow 10% every year to stay even. Because people get relocated, they die, they move on, they get mad at you. For one of all those reasons, you gotta grow by 10% to stay even, right? So what'll happen is someone will come along, and this has happened to me, and this has happened to friends of mine, where they'll say, uh, I don't like the direction we're going, and you've changed. And I'm like, thank you. I hope I've changed. I hope I've grown in 24 years. What they're saying is, I want to go back here. I don't like here. And so right here... I'll remind them is we picked you up here. But when my wife and I sat in a basement apartment and altered our life plans, we were here. And you weren't there. And we weren't waiting for you to say you were all in to do what we're doing. We love the fact that we picked you up here. We really do. But if you leave, we'll miss you. But we're going here, see? Does that mean people are replaceable? Absolutely not. We're taking every member on a journey. We wanna know all of you. We wanna know your gifts. We wanna see you reach your full redemptive potential in Christ. But we're not going to stop to train for small-mindedness and something that is anti what we believe to the core of our being. In a kingdom, the king moves his troops around as he sees fit. Soldiers are assigned to different platoons as the need arises. Personnel come and go. We say goodbye, we mourn, we move on. In a family, we stay together through thick and thin. Family members don't come and go. Again, the greatest tragedy is that we lose someone. In week three, I'm gonna tell you about what is probably the most important thing of this S-curve, how to avoid decline. And this, this is for you, this is your family, this is the church. Death is not inevitable. You know how you beat it? A new birth at the top, new life. We have to remember the old paths but Jesus said he came to do what? Put new wine into new wineskins. He didn't come to reform Judaism. He came to start a whole new thing. So five years ago, we started a 2020 vision. And I'm going to talk a lot about that in week three, where we're going. We've been taking our staff on Tuesdays, 1 o'clock, through the book of Acts. And the reason we're taking them through the book of Acts is we don't want to become the church of Acts. They were the expression of the church in their day, we want to be the expression of what God's doing today. 
God, would you breathe on us today? Would you give us new visions and new things? God, would you bring us people whose hearts get enlarged when they hear the word of God that we might go out in the highways and byways and see one of the greatest harvests? I believe the best is yet to come. Let me say two things about new initiatives and then I'll close. One new initiative is going to be Christianity Explored. We're finding out from people who run that we have one of the largest launches in the history of Christianity Explored. Um, we're hoping that Rico Tice will come here in the new year. We're going to hit this hard for five years because evangelism is messy and we need to cast more seed and some of you need to get messy. The other thing is we started a search, a national search through a company to find a youth pastor. John Riley, who led worship today, was a youth pastor. He was fantastic. He moved on to worship. We had a couple false starts with other youth leaders. And I'll take the hit. We've tried, but we haven't tried hard enough. Your kids deserve the best. We need to reach every kid in Delaware Valley. And that is going to be a supreme initiative of 2018. We're going to get a youth pastor who loves God and has passion in this building and start ministering to your kids.